So I think Accession is a really good episode with a lot of interesting ideas and concepts and themes about uh, Bajor and their religion and their culture and the occupation and kind of Cisco's role yeah. as emissary. And we'll talk about all of that. But I think the primary and most important thing that we need to get out in the open right now is that Keiko and Miles oh, are having sex at least twice. Yeah, they're having another kid uh, and they make out a lot in this episode. Yeah. And, the and, episode, does, and doesn't even he make this joke about trying for twins? Yeah. yeah. And she's like, that's not how it works because I only want your penis in my body to make a child. Oh, I don't want. God. And Molly's a dick too. Like, Yeah, Molly's know. horrible for whatever reason. I think that, that Keiko is fine. But yeah, it just the episode you know, starts Keiko out. Keiko has a, such a mom hairstyle now. Like she's she looks really good, but she's definitely like looking mom. If you know what I mean, it's like, a practical hairstyle. Yeah, she no, was, that's it. Like she was tromping around the woods of Bajor for with a year. A kid, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. The episode starts out with uh, Miles and, and Keiko making out, and it's just you know it's not a good way to go. It's several seconds they make out. Like they they they. And I, I just don't want to think about Miles O'Brien's potato body on top of Keiko. Oh. I just really don't. Well, actually, no. He she would be on top. Right. Uh, of course. Yeah. Like she, yeah. Uh, now, now, I, I mean, I am sure there are so many short stories on the Internet which have gone into, you know, positions and attitudes sure. and, you know, conversations they have in the middle. So, you know, this is all this lore has been figured out. I, I will say that that you know, all joking aside, I I do like how DS Nine is evolving their relationship, yeah. is evolving their marriage, and it's a it, it's come a long way from them being introduced as a couple in I believe it was Data's Day yeah. from the fourth season of TNG, where they didn't really seem to know each other. And their relationship seemed very sort of immature in a weird way. Yeah. Like they were just having weird conversations about what they were going to eat for dinner and <laughs> not really understanding each other. And the relationship never felt very lived in or real. And I think DS9 has done a good job of, of you know, g- going away from that. Yeah. I like where this episode has taken them in particular with Bashir in that, you know, when Keiko was first leaving, O'Brien was going crazy and he and Bashir started just hanging out because they were just really that bored and they were the only two that were just kind of there. And now we're at the point where they really miss each other. I mean, they're tramping. I think it's adorable that they have little costumes and everything. And, you know, they're not just, you know, little costumes that are fabricated for the purpose. Like, they, you know, Miles keeps it in his closet, you know. (laughs) So... I think he actually keeps it in Molly's room, which is kind of strange. (laughs) Or something, yeah. But... And I like that they eventually, you know, and frankly, that Keiko's gotten used to him not being around all the time and has gotten her thing. And, you know, getting to that point where they both think they need to be spending all their time together and realizing they kind of like having separate lives, which is, I don't know, a nice thing because they both get to a stasis in their relationship where they're both in a very good place and they manage to yeah. kind of redefine their terms. And I think this. that's probably a healthy relationship. Oh. And, you know, I think, of course, once Keiko has the baby in, in seven months, I think oh. that he'll be around a lot more because, of course, having a baby is a lot of responsibility of and hard work and both of them need to be involved. But, you know. But at this point, again, they, they are still well, coming off of about a year of not being together. To a degree, they need to learn to be together and they also need to learn to be apart. I mean, frankly, it- well, Keiko, Keiko is more involved in her career again. She's yeah. got her own work to do. 
she's not sitting around their quarters at cross purposes with nothing to do. Molly's no. a little bit older now. I think she's probably what four at this point, and so she's she a little can play bit, by herself for the most right. part. Right? They don't need two parents around all the time to watch her. So it's it's nice that there's kind of separating out, and and they're able to sort of like talk about the relationship and show the relationship yeah. in a little bit of a different way. You know, and, and there's that little cute little trick where she you know tells oh he's you know he's feeling really sad you know <laughs> but you know. I, I like that she knows how to play Bashir as well. Oh, you know, yeah. And, and that, obviously, yeah, she's not really friends with him, but, you know, he's her husband's best friend. So, you know, she has that kind of relationship with him. And I don't know. It's it's they are a very nice, sweet little domestic thing. And that is kind of nice to have in the midst of all the chaos, you know, and I'm yes. glad that they I'm also glad that they don't seem to be drawing out this plot line very much. It's an episode, you know, it's the B plot of an episode where they have a bit of you know, communication problems and then settle into their new routine. Yeah, pretty much. I think this is not going to be an issue going forward. But, 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 but it, they did way- have to kind of reset it a little bit. And you know, obviously O'Brien and, and Bashir are still going to hang out. But, you know, the show had to kind of deal with that. So, But in a way, the B-plot is dealing with, in a way, a sea change in a relationship, in a household, in, in an environment, just as the A-plot is dealing with a sea change with the emissary and in you know, certain Bajoran policies. Before we move on to that, though, I do want to make one final comment about, or actually two final comments about the B, the B story. Number one, Colmini uh, apparently really did not like the joke uh, that his quarters were a mess. He thought it was a cliche, which admittedly it is. Yeah. Um, and also we've seen O'Brien's quarters before this and they were yeah. not like that at all. So. And particularly given that. And it's kind of a lame joke. And, and given who O'Brien is, that he is an en- engineer whose job literally is putting things in order. Yeah. It does he? He is not probably the kind of person who is going to not, you know, he's at home in his closet's a mess. He's going to fix the closet. Right. Exactly. And uh, the other thing I want to say about it is I just love how they're using Worf in, oh my in, God. in general. The just Keiko's having a baby right now. <laughs> well, because with TNG, I think a yeah. lot of the times the joke was on Worf. And I think in DS9 so far, he's been able to like be a part of the joke, yes. which is nice. And a- 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 It was very nice because we, because we saw the episode you know, recently for um, the Penske file, which we guested on, and we watched the episode where Keiko delivers That's the baby. Right. That's so right. it was really funny to have, you know, that was a callback to something I'd just seen very recently. Yeah, and yeah, that was a month or two ago. Of course, yeah. that's a great uh, scene too, you know. Yeah. But one of the things I loved about it, so he makes he makes up this excuse like, oh, I'm going to be off the station visiting my parents. You know who else is with his parents? Alexander, his goddamn son. If you think, like, it, 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 he is talking about somebody having another child and his own child doesn't come to his mind. He talks about going to the place where his child is and he doesn't even mention his kid. Like, Well, Worf is, <laughs> Worf is a shitty parent. Oh, yeah, I love it. What are you going to do? You know, every time somebody mentions the phrase, your son Alexander to Worf, I immediately gonna think he's going to say, I have a son? So you seem to like the a plot of this episode um i do and i don't i feel like i feel like this episode would have been a little better if we had seen cisco acting as an emissary beforehand we see a little bit in this at the beginning when he's you know he's doing certain things at ceremonies and he's um you know giving little blessings we've seen him try and beg off of doing so oh you know th- there was one i th- not that 
long ago where he was off on a mission and you know Kira especially, you know he says oh well starship down yeah yes that was it the the because the you know, he kind of made that mission because it was coinciding with the big emissary festival that he was supposed to be that you know we've known he's uncomfortable with the role but maybe it would have been a little better thing to set up but that the, well not- i think that criticism is valid i also think that you have to look at it in context yes. of what the the showrunners were of course. putting up with and yeah like you know come on uh <laughs> i know everything about the show eric well it's interesting because they, they had a lot of trouble getting this episode made really um Apparently, Paramount did not like the Bajor stories, uh, which is one of the reasons why they, they sort of have, have huh. dropped off the radar a little bit. I mean, you know, the show was pretty Bajor heavy in the first couple yeah, yeah, seasons. Yeah. And, you know, Bajor hasn't been around that much. I mean, obviously, we've had, you know, Shakar make an well, appearance a couple times. And, and part of that was because what's, you know, the Dominion ch- you know, changed a lot of things. For example, well, the, I whole, think... the whole alliance with Cardassia now and, you know, Bajor and Cardassia are not openly fighting. So Well, they don't have an alliance, but anyway. Oh, well. I, I think that the show has done a good job of masking the fact that Paramount kind of told them mm. not to do Bajor stories anymore. Okay. But yeah, they really wanted to do this story. They really, you know, the idea of Cisco as the emissary, you know, introduced in the pilot, the pilot of the show yeah. is called Emissary. They haven't really done that much with it, but it is one of the more central, I think, questions or, or themes at the heart of the show and, and the character of Cisco. And I think this episode goes a long way towards, you know, yes, on the one hand, you could say, okay, yeah, maybe we should have seen him accept the role a little bit more. Yeah, I would argue that Starship Down was him accepting that yes. role. And now we see the fruits of that. And I think it's more to That's do with fair. the limitations of this type of television yeah, yeah, storytelling yeah. than anything else. And I think there is a degree to which it's not like... See, we see these, this other emissary come in, and he steps right into the role. He seems to know exactly what the role of the emissary is, what the emissary is supposed to do, what it means, which makes sense. He is a you know religiously inclined Bajoran who has thought— you know, So he's a Bajoran. Yeah, fair enough. He's a poet. He's thought about this very deeply, and, you know, uh, and so he knows what the role means. He is prepared to step into this. Cisco never even had an orientation. You know, you never get the sense that yeah, you get the sense that he's mentioned this and he's terrified and he doesn't, you know, Kyle Pocket doesn't exactly hand him a packet. He doesn't really feel comfortable asking her questions. So he's right there. You know, he's had at this point, maybe he's had some phonetic instructions and prayers, you know, from Kira, most likely. And that's about it. You know, he learns. For example, one of the things that he learns in this episode, Kira has that line where she said, you know, we would do whatever you said we would do. And he begins to realize the degree of significance that the emissary role really has, you know, the degree of influence and authority he has over Bajor, which is something that nobody really told him yes. in a way. To a degree, because you think that maybe you know, they just – they know it. You know? But I also think that that it's it's interesting because Cisco stays away from learning about the emissary. Yeah. I mean, it would be very easy for him to tune into Bajor and CNN or something, and or, or you know, or, or talk to some Vedics and find out. He could probably get a kitty book on the subject too. Yeah, right. I mean, he he has ways of finding out that are pretty easy for him to. We see Cisco go out getting and do that, but reports he on do it. cultures all the time. He knows how to learn about. Yeah. Because he's afraid of, you know, the position he's uncomfortable Which with the role, I think- as, as he could be, of a, a, a religion that he has no uh, stake in and that probably before 
at the beginning of the series, he maybe may not have really even known anything about. Well, let me, let me ask you this question. I mean, this is the you know fourth season of the of the show. We're we're kind of getting towards the end of it now. We've got like ten episodes left or something. Yeah. Um, do you see? a progression in Cisco's attitude, not towards being the emissary, but towards Bajor, because it does. I think the episode does kind of make it clear in this episode that Cisco sees his primary responsibility here and kind of, yeah, this is true because this is how the show was kind of set up in, in the pilot that Cisco was there to sort of bring Bajor into the fold of the yeah. Federation. And so far that hasn't happened, but the work has been done kind of in the background. And we see that in some episodes, you know, most recently, I think in life support where Vedic Burial dies and yeah. he was there to sort of like talk about this Cardassian Alliance. But then of course, you know, he wants to bring Bajor into the Federation. Then Kai, Kai Wynn tries to like, you know, do some machinations that she's doing, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, and, and, and it's, it's one of those things that you look at and you say, does this make sense? I think is my question for you. Oh yeah. I mean that, that, was the primary job that Cisco was given. He was running Deep Space Nine, which was kind of the, the Federation's base of operations for all of the work that's going to take towards, number one, rebuilding from the uh, from the war yeah. and also get, you know, doing all of the paperwork and figuring out, number one, is Bajor a good candidate at this point, stewarding them through making whatever changes needed to be made because obviously – there would need to you know there will be need to be a ton of administrative and diplomatic things that need to be done you know again we see little bits of those most of it is behind the scenes because it would be really boring it's like tariff type stuff we would assume i would find it really interesting well of course you would but i wouldn't um and yes the dominion stuff has been much more kind of upfront than the stuff because again part of it is you get the sense that some of the Bajor stuff is progressing without our main characters or just stuff that we're not seeing on the in, – in the day-to-day. The Dominion stuff is more interesting, more enthralling. But at the same time, if Bajor full-stop 100 percent scuttles Federation negotiations, Cisco has failed in his job. Yes. And that is that that is the reason that he is there. And so, you know, there is that point, again, when she says that, you know, you could have – you know, done any said anything, and we would have done that. Where we kind of realizes, well, if I had just said, you know, Bajor, you need to do this, this, and this, and this, and then we'll sign your Federation paperwork. Mission accomplished. Well, that that's really the, the I think the key to the heart of the episode, which is you know this guy, um, uh, a quorum lamb coming through the wormhole, this poet from two hundred years ago. And, you know, kind of saying, I'm the emissary. Let's go back to our Dejars, yeah. which we will talk about because holy shit. But the the kind of and, and Cisco realizing that, you know, his primary responsibility is here is to Bajor and really his I his his uh I think his kind of the way that he's going to do that is through this role of emissary. And while he knows that Starfleet command is perhaps not completely comfortable with this and the Federation is not completely comfortable yeah. with this. You know, he's not going to go out and say, hey, you need to sign the Federation paperwork now because I'm the emissary, so do it, because that's not who Cisco is. That's not how he was trained. That's not how the Federation operates. But he is going to, I think, now accept the role on the terms in which it is granted to him, and he's going to have a a sort of quiet influence on Bajor. 
Well, that is. It It would be very anti-Prime Directive, anti-the spirit of the show for him, against somebody who has no real stake in this culture, to come in and change it in this way. Uh, it's frankly, while obviously the Dejara thing is incorrect and outdated and something that in the episode makes very clear is wrong, there isn't really this... Cisco almost feels like he has... Which I think the episode sells a little too much, but anyway. Oh, yeah. Uh, the guy's name, and I forget the new MSR. A Quorum Lamb. Lamb. Quorum Lamb. Um, a Quorum, I think his name is, but anyway. Anyway, uh, to a degree, I feel almost, Cisco almost feels that Quorum Lamb has more of a right to the role than he does simply because, you know, one's human, one's Bajoran, and, you know, he's allowed... It, 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 it's one... Th- given the choice between... Somebody from outside pushing Bejor into the right path, quote unquote, or someone from Bejor pushing them onto the wrong path. The latter is at least more respectful of their culture in a way, it, it, you know. And well, but but it's it's a it is certainly a thorny issue. Well, I think that's really the tension at the heart of the episode because you know, on the one hand, the episode has a pretty straight through line, you know, and. Yeah. You know, Cisco, oh, he's uncomfortable being the emissary. This new guy comes through and says he's the emissary. Cisco's like, phew, all right. It's not me anymore. Yeah. I don't have to deal with this shit. You go do what you need to do, and I'll just be a Starfleet officer again, and I'll deal with the Dominion, and I'll deal with Bejor on the sort of political terms. And again, and, almost thinking that this emissary is going to take the ceremonial role as well. Well, no, I actually disagree oh. with you. I think that Cisco doesn't understand well, the emissary role. And I, so— I, I, what what I see is really, you know, kind of at the heart of this episode is Cisco realizing exactly the Bajoran, how, how much power and sort yes. of how much influence the the title of emissary has on the Bajoran people and how that really can be used in ways that are going to, I think, Cisco, in a sense, he's realizing how much he cares about the Bajoran people and how yeah. much he cares about and how important he thinks it is that they join the Federation. And when this guy, Aquarum Lamb, comes back and declares himself the emissary, and on the one hand, yeah. Cisco's like, great, okay, you you do that. When Aquarum Lamb suddenly makes this decision to, to bring back Dejaras, and he's, he's an older man, he's from 200 years ago, yeah. he doesn't understand the, the situation now. That Cisco realizes that this is a really, really bad situation that that could be brewing. Yeah, as I said, I think he th- all he thinks is that the role is ceremonial and that Coram Lamb's going to enjoy the parades, but suddenly he's making this very. And again, I think it's very. I think the episode does go out of its way to make us not hate Coram Lamb. It's not like he's doing this out of any evil reason. He genu he's extraordinarily misguided. He's misinterpreted a lot of things. He fails to see the reality. He doesn't really have the perspective necessary. But at the same time, he wants what's best for Bajor as well. It's just he doesn't understand what's best for Bajor. And that's kind of— Or he what, wants what's best for for, for Bajor of 200 years ago. That's fi- Yes, fair point. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's funny because um, they actually wanted a different actor to play a quorum lamb. They wanted David Warner to play him, which— uh, He's a – I forget what he's been in, but you would know his face if I showed I it to you. I knew this guy's face too. But. Yeah, and, and – so, oh, the, the guy who played a quorum lamb? Yeah, who oh, was – I don't know. Uh, I, I have no I idea. I assume a similar character actor. I mean he's been in yeah. something else. But he's not as good as David Warner would have been. Mm. And I think that, that the way – you know, Iris Stephen Bear said that the way that they kind of wanted this to go – uh, they they wanted a quorum lamb to be a little bit more of a good challenge to Cisco, And I think yeah. the way that this actor plays the role – 
he doesn't seem to really have the gravitas necessary that to make this huge of a change mm. and to sort of inspire. I mean, one of the problems yeah, with yeah, the yeah. episode, if we can say the episode has problems, and I think it does, is that the Vedic who kills the other Vedic, that's a little overblown. I think that, you know, having this sort of mass cultural change this quickly would not happen. There would be more pushback. Yeah. You, you could argue that that is intentional because it really does show the power that the role of the emissary has. But then again, it's like, well, the emissary could be a dictator then and no one would stop him because he'd be like, well, you know what? We're going to go back. We're going to... Ma- like, what if the emissary was like, let's have the Cardassians ba- come back and, and occupy <laughs> us again? Like, it's that, that kind of... like. It, but it seems like the episode is making the argument that the Bajorans would go along with that, which seems kind of ridiculous. See, I think it's more of – and maybe the episode could have clarified this. You get the sense that the people who are in certain upper castes or the more ruling classes, more religious castes are – and maybe were not in that position are jumping at it because suddenly, all right, you know, I get to, you know, reclaim my old position. And people such as Kira, you know, who are being shuffled into a place where they're not talented and uninterested and – Frankly, Kira is too old to learn to become an artist. Probably, um, she has, or at least a good one. Well, you know, I, certainly it's capable, but she's never shown any desire to. You know, and actually, never. I think the episode at one point before has made the art basically said she has no artistic talent. Yeah, so yeah, but you know, obviously she's a very cape, and you know, there's the again the, the situation with the Dajaras is ob- an obvious. It's a thing you can't go back to. Logistically, it's impossible to go back to just because you have all these people who are suited, are are trained very well trained into the positions where they are, who have gotten where they were through their own merits. We assume or yeah, their own yeah. abilities. Again, we're we're taking this from a Federation perspective. People in the Federation tend to settle into the role that they're most useful in but certainly in the case of major kira she has settled into the role where she is the most comfortable in and you know imagine people there are going to be people who are suddenly born into doctor medical castes you know and they're going to be given a scalpel and told to operate you know and you know it's not even you know i think it's even darker than that because if the jars were just a caste system that kind of told people what jobs they were going to do that would be oh one yeah thing. that's true it's... but then you get that scene where the woman who's in the lower caste gives kira her chair and kira is very uncomfortable yeah. with that and there is some you know there there is some some darker you know civil rights sort of stuff is going on here that yeah kira is very uncomfortable with cisco is also very uncomfortable with it and and you all you know oh sorry no. Well, one of the things that that scene implies is that obviously Kira hasn't had any, pro- you know, demanded that seat, but maybe there were a couple of people who, as I said, there probably were some people in more noble casts who jumped at it and probably were really shitty to that woman the night before. And so she's kind of a little nervous. Yeah. And also, frankly, too, I mean, again, you know, I mentioned the Vedic who murders the other Vedic, but but on yeah. the one hand, that kind of comes across as like a, a weird, you know, it, it's kind of a weird choice for the episode to make just because the Vedic comes across as some sort of character from Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And, you know, I mean, would he kill? I don't know if he would really kill somebody, but I think it, it I don't it, know. It, it's try. I think that part of the episode is is trying a little too hard to really sell the idea that the Jajars are a bad thing. That said, we did I think s- it could have been it, we could have done without that scene. Of course. It's it's an interesting scene coming off of I guess that was last week when uh Worf had the troubles with his, you know, doing the uh 
Shocktober, Mocktober with his uh, brother. Yeah. Uh, performing a religiously, a culturally uh, prescripted murder. Yeah. Yeah. And but but still, we can, that's the sort of thing that makes sense within Klingon that we can totally see it fit very well with other things we've seen. But this doesn't really seem to jibe with anything we've seen from. And also, Bajor. frankly, it, it it doesn't seem to indicate that this kind of thing would be okay, even on a Dejara Bajor. Yeah, you know, I don't think that it's okay for for people to kill people for for not uh, being in their Dejaras, but. It does. It does kind of just go a little bit far for me. I think. Yeah. It seem. It anyway. It, it it seems like the kind of thing where even if, you know, you you can look in the Bible and say, all right, you know, you will be stoned if you're an adulterer or whatever. And it seems like the thing that even a modern Bajor on the Dajaras would view as an archaic thing. And yeah. Never. No. Yeah. We, we we we. That was done. You know, back in the uncivilized days. But you know, now we have. We just go into jail. So the other thing to talk about before we move on um, to the next episode is the resolution of it. I think this is what the first time we've seen the the wormhole alien since the pilot. I think that's right. Or maybe we saw the ones no. before. There was a Ferengi one where they went into the wormhole, though, wasn't there? Didn't Quark? Oh, yeah, yeah that's right. Quark yeah, yeah, definitely yeah. talked with the... Yeah, but this is the first time I think that Cisco has talked yes. with since the pilot. So okay. that's a little different. And then, you know, they kind of... The, this idea of the Cisco, which I think is new. Have they said that before? I don't remember if that was said in the pilot or not. I, I don't, don't think it was said in the pilot, at least. And so there's this idea that they have chosen Cisco to be their emissary. Like, the, 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 the yeah. implication is clear. Um, and, you know, the emissary stuff it, with the wormhole aliens, the prophets, whatever you want to call them. This, I don't know that I have that much to say about it. I think it's all very sort of nebulous and hard to follow. But I mean, I like scenes like that. I gen- generally when the show does visions and dreams, it's I, I've said before, it does them very well. The scene where he comes and he talks to Kaiopaka is a creepy good scene. The wor- scenes w- when anyone's talking to the wormhole aliens, it, the prophets, it's a great scene. It's always very weirdly angled, and you have people coming from directions they weren't in, and yeah. you know, all those stuff, and you get to see the cast acting very different. It, it's always a cool time to watch. Um, I would say the most salient thing we get from this is this phrase, you know, being of Bajor, and how you know we are for Bajor, and Cisco is as well. Whether that means simply that they, you know, Cisco is acting with Bajor in his heart and acting for the best of it, and we assume the prophets are, or if it means something more obviously, part of the reason you might not be as into those scenes is because you know what it all means. A little bit, yeah, and I think that the show does take that stuff in a weird direction. Okay. And we'll see where that goes, you know, in, in, in subsequent seasons. But still, the prophets at this point have not been answering any questions. They've just asked a few anytime, yeah. anytime they appear we end up having a little more like what the hell is going on which is good yeah the show has been been good enough with all of that it's this is not lost this is not the x-files i don't have five million mysteries but and i also think at some point you know maybe in a, in a future episode about about when they when they bring up the prophets again i think we will have to have a conversation about what it actually means for the bajoran religion to to have well, the, the the prophets are not gods, but the pro they're prophets. They're prophets of what? And also the fact that yeah. they're readily accessible. You know, like well, they haven't been readily accessible prior to this. true, but now they are. And, and so that's the thing. Do they only let? Could any could any asshole in a ship go into the wormhole? Because people go back and forth in the wormhole all the time. 
could anybody go or is it the kind of thing where you got to knock and the prophets will answer if they want to? Right. Yeah. I don't know. Part of me gets the sense that the prophets kind of know they're in an episode and show up and, you know, they don't appear other times unless there's something to say. But we still, you know, we don't know. Yeah, we don't know. But it also, I mean, they did have to hang out there for a while. So there's part of that too. Um, all right. Well, before we move on to to rules of engagement, I do want to mention other th- one other thing about a session, which is that it was written by Jane Spencer, who you don't know who that is. So I okay. don't. She wrote on Buffy. Oh, she was pretty influential on Buffy, um, and I think this was the only Star Trek she ever wrote. Huh. So I, I just thought I'd mention that because it was kind of interesting that she, of all people, wrote this pretty important episode, yeah. kind of redefining Cisco's role with and it, and, <laughs> with it, with the with the Bajoran religion. And and it makes sense why all of the prophets to, you know talked in very mannered voices like they were from California, teenagers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's huh. true. Let's talk about rules of engagement. It's another Worf episode and it comes pretty closely on the heels of the last Worf episode. And I yeah. think one of the things I'm realizing about the fourth season is that it's fairly Worf heavy. Yes. Which makes sense. We've talked about before and I don't think we necessarily need to go in again. The thing is, though, this is a really, really good episode. Well, this is the episode which, again, Worf, one of Worf's major themes has been, is he Federation? Is he Klingon? And... He made his decision uh, in Sons of Moog that, no, he's going on Federation side. He may still be a Klingon. He may still have have these Klingon values dear to his heart, but at the end of the day, he's going to make the Federation choice. In this, we literally have him on trial to answer that question. Yes, and, and also I think it's important to denote the difference there, which is that uh, a couple reasons why this episode works as well as it does. Number one, I find uh, you know the storytelling device of having them cut between you know what actually yeah, was going was on weirdly... and, and having the characters speak in the courtroom, but have them be in the location of what they're at, what, what they're talking about was was a really interesting device, and I like it when you know DS Nine gets a little you know structurally experimental. And the other thing to keep in mind as well is that you know this episode really could have just told us everything that we have known time and time again. You know, in Sons of the Father, Worf chose the Federation. In Redemption, Worf chose the Federation. In Sons of Moe, Worf chose the Federation. You know, like, we don't need to be told, you know, we don't need to be told this again. But the difference here is that we find out that the Klingons now are just fucking sick of it and want to discredit him. And here's the thing. Worf has always said, no, I'm choosing, he's always chosen the Federation. He's always said he's Federation to Federation people. Anytime he talks to Klingon people, he defends how Klingon he is. He talks about how Klingon he is. This is a time where he has to talk to – he has to tell a Klingon and by proxy the rest of Kronos that, no, I'm Federation through and through. I should not – you know, I acted as a Federation officer and not a Klingon. Yes. Because they put him in a very funny position of damned if he does, damned if he doesn't, if he – Says that he did this, you know, as a cling, you know, as bl- out of bloodlust. He's in a lot of trouble for massacring the ship. If he says he did this as a Federation officer, well, then he is fully barred from Kling- from Klingons, from Klingon. For well, he's barred from either. I think. Yeah, you know, it, and it's interesting too because you know, again, this was I think the teleplay was by Ron Moore, and and the story yeah. was by a couple of other uh, act uh, people who whose names I don't remember right now, but it's. It doesn't really tell us, I think, the full... We don't get the full picture of what's going on until the very end. Yeah. And we also don't get the full picture of what Cisco thinks about this until the very end. 
And and because again, remember, this was a couple weeks ago, after weeks after Worf tried to kill somebody on his ship, and now he's being on trial because he may have massacred a ship full of civilians. Like this is a trouble officer. At the same time, Cisco is standing by him through the whole thing. Yes. And I also think that if the resolution of the episode doesn't make complete sense. Yeah. I don't really understand why the Klingons would go to all the trouble of creating a fake passenger manifest for people that survived a crime. Like, it doesn't... Like, on the one hand, it's like, why... It seems like they were hanging out with Romulans who came up with this plan. Yeah, yeah, I think so. It's like, (laughs) hey, you guys want to lose? You need to follow us. But maybe that's the point. Maybe this is the Klingons trying something non-Klingon. I mean, I think that is the part of the irony of this episode. Yeah, because there's no real way that the Federation would... I mean, if they had not gone to the lengths... I mean, obviously, Cisco was going to go through great lengths to prove Worf... To get Worf off. Not to prove Worf innocent, necessarily, because he is not sure, you know, whether or not he he is innocent. But he, he doesn't want... Worf to go, you know, be be at the at the mercy of the Klingon Empire because he doesn't believe that, you know, perhaps he believes that Worf acted inappropriately, and in, which we know at the end mm-hmm. of the episode in firing on the ship prematurely before he verified what ship it was. But at the same time, he doesn't want Worf to be, you know, to be judged by the Klingon Empire for that. And yeah. also, it doesn't really make and and he of course Cisco is going to go through great lengths to find out exactly what happened and whether or not this is actually true. And I think that, yeah, part of the issue is really like the Klingons again, this plan doesn't make a ton of sense. Yeah. It's a pretty good plan until they just use the same, you know, if passenger manifest. Up, yeah. Like that's the one thing that feels a little plot constructed to me. It's, yeah. a, it's a minor criticism. They needed a way to prove that this was a shenanigan. But again, I'm, I'm okay with that because the mechanics of the episode weren't as much its point. Um, The point was showing the Klingons trying to gain another foothold and by very unusual means. I mean, that's almost a – again, DS9 is a show that's dealt a bit more with stratagems. This is – this is – one almost wonders if there's a Dominion agent who came up with this plan for the Klingons because, you know – they win either way. you know either way they do well if the federate if the klingons win this case that's a crippling blow to the federation and that's going to just cause more chaos in the in the, in the quadrant i don't know i mean i i i don't know if i want to go too far down that road of, of course that's but a I rabbit think, hole but i think that it's I don't. I, I think that the Klingons are overestimating exactly the kind of black eye this would give the Federation. Yeah, you know, and and I don't think that the Klingons are suddenly going to to uh, uh, get the sympathy of the entire quadrant just because no. this one thing happened. You know, it's a little. I think the episode might agree with us that this is a shitty plan. I yes. mean, they, again, every, you know, the Federation unravels it. I I I was fairly sure through most of it, frankly, that. Well, I couldn't figure out exactly what. It was fairly clear that this was so. They, Worf did not kill a ship full of civilians. There was some kind of, you know, trick going on. Uh, well, also, I think that, that, that frankly, that would be a, a line a little too far oh, yeah. across for the show. Uh, you know, this is still Star Trek. Of course. And 
that has not happened before, to my knowledge. No, and not with a main character, and particularly not with a beloved main character from TNG who has been brought over to this show in his first ten episodes. You know, like, that's, no, that's not a line that they would cross. But at the same time, um, the episode makes it clear that as far as the as far as Cisco is concerned, there's a degree to which he might as well have killed a ship's full of civilians because he did do the wrong call. Uh, yes, and it's only luck that uh, and that he was in, you know that he happened to be embroiled in this situation that he didn't end up killing a ship full of civilians. But next time, it could have just as easily been a real ship and he made the wrong call he made the wrong call he's not quite ready for this yet and this is why every but every this is why everybody tells mr wharf no don't fire the phasers <laughs> it's true yeah this is what happens when you put Worf in charge of the phasers yeah well i think you know it, it, this episode you know as much as it is a wharf episode i don't really think it's about wharf that much you know no. it doesn't tell us that much about wharf i think this is much more of a cisco episode oddly enough yeah and specifically, I think it's a Cisco episode and and sort of kind of the relationship between Worf and Cisco and how that yeah. is developing because that seems to be where the show is very interested in in sort of navigating at this point. You know, I think that Worf is as integrated into the rest of the crew at this point as he, he's going to be. He feels like a main character now. Yeah, I think that, you know, he and Jadzia have their little sparring sessions in the holodeck. You know, um, uh, 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 O'Brien and Worf yes. get along. You know, they all kind of joke along. Quark obviously knows Worf at this point. Odo has, a, you know... A, a grudging respect for him. It's sort of they have an They see eye to eye. And so we know all that stuff, and really the central question, something I like about it, is that, you know, it is an opportunity for for Cisco to sort of, you know, because really it's about Cisco and Worf and how they're getting along and how Mm. their professional relationship is progressing. And it's, I think it's the right call for the show to decide that Cisco doesn't care about Worf personally. Yeah, they're not friends. They're not friends. You know, Cisco doesn't really want to know about Worf's personal life. He doesn't really care about Worf's belief in Klingon rituals yeah. and Klingon practices. Picard very much did. And Picard, yeah. you know, while he was a more aloof captain, while he did not take as close a look or an involvement in his officers' personal lives as as Cisco does, oddly enough... I think that Worf did take, you know, I think that Picard did take a pretty yeah. significant role in Worf's personal life in as much as he well, did. And then he, Cisco doesn't. It's almost the exact opposite, where Cisco has a pretty good relationship personally with all of his officers, except for Worf. Yeah. I mean, Picard did it to the degree where he was his Chadich in that episode. Um, yeah. He, uh, you really like saying Chadich, don't you? Chadich, it's one of the few words I can say right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's kind of a similar role to what Cisco plays in this episode, and that he is his legal counsel. Um, and yet, yeah, a, 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 as you say, I and would, this this does have echoes of courtroom dramas from TNG that we've seen before, or frankly frank, from TOS, and I mean, frankly from DS Nine. I mean, this was a. It's interesting to see this wasn't completely a Klingon court, just as the Cardassian episode was a. You know, the, that episode was a Cardassian court, and we got to see uh, yeah. how Cardassian justice works. And we've talked a lot about that as a, uh, you know, th- their system. We're starting to see a bit on of Klingon justice, and it's really interesting. I like well, it and- because I like the idea of a Klingon lawyer. He's gonna fucking. 
Well, I want to I want to <laughs> talk about that, but I do want to remind you that we did see this sort of thing before in the first season episode, Dax. Yeah. So it's kind of a similar thing. That's true. I, and this is also more, I mean, obviously this is a Starfleet uh, uh, hearing. This is not a Klingon hearing. And so Starfleet has its own code of justice as yeah. the real life military does, of course. And this is not a Federation trial. Um, you know, and I think it's a little, maybe it's a little overblown with the bell and stuff. But it, yeah, it's, it's, it's an it's extradition a, hearing. That's that's it. Exactly. And, and what I like about it is that, you know, we haven't really seen non-warriors, quote unquote, with Klingons. Yeah. And, you know, we've seen a little bit of it, like, for example, in Star Trek 4 with the Klingon ambassador who's who's at the Federation Council and you know he's talking about the war criminal Kirk and how they want to get him back and all this kind of stuff. We that's not a character you see that much in yeah. in Star Trek and it makes sense. The other that I remember uh I mean we've seen a few like, you know, people in like the slums of, you know, yeah. but I also remember that one episode with the Ferengi scientist who invents the uh Warp drive, and you have the Klingon scientist there, and you know how, how she is very a very Klingon scientist, and he is a very Klingon lawyer, and it makes sense. I yeah, mean, there they, there are ways to be a warrior that aren't actually going out and stabbing people with batlets. Yeah, he sees you know this lawyer sees this as a you know certainly it's an intellectual and a cerebral challenge, but he sees it as a battle of wits. You know, he and. Cisco are meeting and, you know, they're, they're evidence and they're wielding it against each other and yeah. whichever one is going to win, you know? And, and I mean, and how good is that actor in that role? Oh, I love the scene when he's trying everything to bait Worf and he mentions his son and he doesn't bite at the sub, but you know, he's, and you see Cisco knows much you know he sees it coming miles away Worf doesn't but he knows exactly what this guy is doing and yeah. he's just you know going over the top and pissing him off and it's it's great and it works for a second I actually thought that the lawyer was involved in this larger plot to a degree uh I get the implication from the ending that he's not, but it almost seems like that's where he is. Seems like he knew about it. Yeah, but then the ending implies that he doesn't. I that doesn't really. Well, what do you mean? Uh, when he admits, so yes, all of that's possible. He seems obviously is very deflated at losing, but it. I don't know. Maybe I, I interpreted that very differently. I think he knew exactly what was going on mm. the whole time, and he just can't say it on the stand. He's no, not going to go. Yes, you're right. Ha-ha. Well, I mean, because uh, which, of course, you know, compare that to the episode where O'Brien was in the Cardassian trial, where everyone involved knows exactly how much of a show trial this is, and they know when they've been defeated. So, yes, maybe in this case, he knows. You know, all right, another day. Yeah, and I, I think that at this point, this is not going to be the last time that the Klingons go after Worf oh, no. either. You know, I think that that I don't know. I the Klingons are kind of you know kind of having an an interesting yeah. role in the show at this point, and and you know I think that they work pretty well as antagonists, even as they're not fully enemies. And I think that you know this episode makes it clear that. You know, the Klingons are still playing by some of the rules. Like, yes, they've left the Kitamura Accords. Yeah, but. They're not in open warfare with the yes. Federation. They are still sending ambassadors. They are still sending diplomats. To They're re- sending this advocate guy to DS9 to go through legal channels to get Worf. Mm-hmm. I think they kind of know, even though they you would never hear anybody admit it, that they can't win in open warfare against the Federation right now. They yeah. have. And number one, they're going to get heavy losses and the Dominion is going to sweep in and, you know, just finish it up. Uh, and so, yes, they have to, you, 
frankly, this is the Klingons having to use subterfuge kind of for the first time. They're really bad at it, but... Yeah, because interestingly enough, I mean, we know about the Tal Shiar. We know about um, the Obsidian Order. Yeah. Have we ever really heard of a Klingon version of that? No, there doesn't seem to be any... I, I... I don't think we've ever mentioned anyone's particularly mentioned if the Klingon like they don't seem to. Yeah, they don't seem to have a secret police. They don't seem to have a separate military. Everyone's just kind of in it for, you know, to a degree almost. Well, no, I don't think so, because this episode makes it very clear that that these were civilians. Yeah. So the Klingons do have a concept of civilians versus military. Fair enough. So Uh, you're wrong. Okay, I'm sorry. But the military is not a power in the same sense that the military is a power on Cardassia, for example. No, no. I, you know, it, you know. funnily enough, I, I think that the Klingons are probably more quote-unquote democratic than yeah. the, the Cardassians are. I mean, it doesn't really seem like... You're, yeah, you're... We know from what we've seen of Klingon government and the way that the politics work that it's very corrupt and the, the sort of upper echelons of the Klingon government and the, the High Council are corrupt. But how that trickles down to the everyday person, the everyday Klingon on the street, we don't really know. There is also the possibility of social advancement to the degree where you stick a knife in your captain's, you know, back. You get his, you know, you get his job, and so to you, know, we've seen in the echelons of the government, you know, powerful houses get to rule, and you become powerful by being great warriors. And so, yes, there is the possibility. How, however real it is or not, you know, is an, is we we could write volumes on that, but it seems like maybe if, we will. Yeah, would if, you would you buy them? Let us know. Truckaboutshow at gmail dot com. Me talking about Klingons for five hundred words. Um, if but that's yeah, a, that's a short book. Each word has a page. Ah, okay. Because um, it's in Klingon. Ah. <laughs> um. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think so. And, you know, I, I don't know to what degree it's it's I'm I'm that interested in watching DS9 go even further into Klingon politics. I think this is maybe as far as I would ever want it to go. Mm. I'm not saying it does or it doesn't, but it, it, they are doing, you know, the show is obviously doing very different things with the Klingons than TNG oh, ever yeah. did. More, a little bit. I wouldn't say more subtle, but I think in a sense it's well, they, Re- recontextualizing and sort of expanding the the universe of the Klingon Empire. In, in the original series, the Klingons were the bad guys. Then you have Star Trek VI come out where they need to be dependent on the Federation. And this is the beginning of a shaky alliance. In TNG, certainly there were Klingons who were doing, you know, who were antagonists. But all of those stories were more on a personal level. They were dealing with the fate of the House of Moog. They were dealing with who was sitting on the council. They were dealing with... Uh, you know, is Worf going to still be discommodated? And you know, no matter what, the relation, you know, even though individual incidents were, you know, bad, the relations between the Federation and the Klingons were pretty static in that they were pretty good. Yeah. At, at this point, you have the Klingons being antagonists to the Federation now. You know, it's it's but in I, a way the in the way the Worf storyline is a personal take on a, the the over a bigger story. Oh, you know, at the same time, though, I mean, you know, just to kind of throw some Star Trek nerd cards on the table, you know, the Kitamura Accords were certainly the start of that, but it didn't really come to a full alliance until after the Enterprise C sacrificed itself to save that Klingon ship. 
um, which is something that we found out about in yesterday's Enterprise. So, yeah. you know, the Kitamura Accords were the start of something, of but it didn't fully develop into this relationship that we saw in TNG until, you know, 30 or 40 years later. But that really doesn't contradict what I just said. No, it doesn't. I just <laughs> I'm putting it in no, there No, as, no, you're right. More, it's more a little more complex, yeah, complex yeah. than that. But the point is, you know, yeah, they have a, they, they have a much different role, but one which also, number one, they take on some of the threat and menace of the original series, but still well within their TNG characterizations. Yeah. That's the thing they have. They've recontextualized, they've rerouted, but they haven't retconned. They haven't changed. It's still the same problems, except they're now even more. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, also I think as well, it's an indication that, you know, maybe this is a question to ask you, but I, I, I think that the trust and sort of the relationship building that has happened with the Klingons and the Federation over the past, you know, 70 years yeah. or whatever it is, I don't know that that's going to get thrown away that easily. You know, and I think that, that, you know, maybe, you know, I'll ask you this point blank. Do you think that this relationship is irreparably damaged now? I don't know. How well is are we how well is our relationship with Russia at this point? I mean, it's not great, but... Well, that's... I mean, obviously, the original series Klingons were supposed to be the commies, but, yeah. you know, I, I would say that we... I don't think it's far-fetched to mention, you know, that real-world analog as kind of an idea of where we are, where Klingons can kind of be. I don't think of the... I, I think the idea of be, us being in a Cold War or even an open war with the Russians sounds hilarious to me, just because it's like, that's Russia. Like, you know, we're, we're over... Aren't we over that by now? Like, we we may not be buddy-buddy, but, you know, what, are we going to fight them? Right, like, right. I, I would be... I would say that most of the people in the Federation would probably have a similar view, you know, even again, you know, maybe in, you know, especially by this point, you know, there are Klingons in the, you know, Worf's in the Federation. He's pretty famous. You know, everyone knows a Klingon, you know. Maybe they're not the best people to hang out with, but, you know, there's still, you know, we're, what, are we going to fight them? Yeah, yeah. Well, and I also think, too, um, it's it's also interesting. You know, we talked last month in the April Patron special about um, what Richard and I would, would like to see from, from the next Star Trek series. It's coming out in 2017. And... You know, kind of we we had, you know, kind of a little bit of a disagreement about whether or not we wanted to really kind of um, be this darker take on Star Trek or how we want that to happen. And I think one of the ways you could look at that is to say, okay, well, as TOS... Uh, you know, the, the Russians were, were the Klingons. You know, what, what are the real world analogs? I mean, I think both of us were in agreement that we want Star Trek to, to talk about real world issues again. And one of the ways that you have to do that is is kind of kind i mean maybe that's what the work of Brian Fuller and Nick Nick Meyer and yeah. all those people that are going to be working on the show and writing on the show how are they going to translate the Star Trek universe into the the post cold war sort of you know i mean we have um obviously terrorist attacks in Europe are not as bad as they were in the 70s and 80s, but they're also coming from a different place. Mm. And so you kind of have to talk about that as well, I think. And, and you know, how is Star yeah, Trek going to talk about the that? the kind of, uh, you know, big bad of the world, you know, or the people that we're supposed to be afraid of, you know, has certainly changed. Yeah, exactly. And so it, it's going to be interesting to see where that goes. And I also think it's, you know, it, it is to a degree, you know, this episode is obviously taking the Klingons in a much less real world analog way as well. Oh yeah, at this and I think it's good that this you know the franchise is able to have it both ways. Again, it can it can develop a culture, but when that culture needs to be allegorical, you know, it, it can, can either create a new one or 
again, shift or show a very specific aspect. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's there's a lot of degrees where Bejor is sometimes Tibet, sometimes it's not, you know. And it's also very good timing that this episode is coming out this week because the patron special for May is about the Klingons. Yeah, and we had a lot to talk about. You're going to like it. Yeah, you will. So if you would like to uh, check out the patron specials, please go to patreon.com slash trackaboutshow. And the patron specials are available at the $5 a month tier. If you have any thoughts on either of the episodes we just talked about, please leave a comment on the post for this episode of the podcast at trekaboutshow.com. Our social media username where you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram is trekaboutshow. And as always, if you have not left us an iTunes review, please leave us an iTunes review like Aslak Cornelius, who was from Denmark, apparently. Ah. So, hi, Denmark. Uh, and They're asked, called Danish, Eric. Oh, right. Uh, he or she says, I've been listening to this podcast alongside my own first viewing of Star Trek. <gasps> That's exciting. And it has enhanced the experience a great deal. The hosts are witty and always make me think about something I wouldn't otherwise. They hit on all fronts, philosophy, character, storytelling, tropes, you name it. They really make you appreciate Star Trek on a whole other level. I can't wait to hear more. So thank you very much for that positive iTunes review. Cornelius, I appreciate you and also on th- a whole other level. Oh, and also thanks for giving us an iTunes review in the Denmark iTunes store because ah. that's cool. We don't think we have one before, so oh. that's exciting. I mean, it's in English, so I don't know how that's really going to work in Denmark, but I guess people in Denmark speak Everybody English. Everybody speaks English. Right? I- I- Aslak hates us now. I'm, I'm shitting all over Denmark. And I don't <laughs> Listen, er- er- Eric, let me be honest. If somebody doesn't speak English, they are going to hate this podcast. I don't think they have enough context to know whether or not they would hate it or not because they don't speak English. I don't speak all. I don't hate all French language podcasts just because <laughs> uh, so, I don't speak French. So we have somebody who doesn't speak a word of English, but they're listening to us week after week, and they're like, "I don't understand this. I guess it's okay." Yeah. They sound like nice people. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, that's it for this episode. But uh, next week. We are getting to the end of the fourth season already, which is crazy to think about. And, you know, I didn't mention this before, but I think a week or two ago, we did hit a kind of a milestone where um, we're actually kind of at past the halfway point of DS9. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, we still got a lot of DS9 oh, to yeah, go, yeah. but... Three and a half seasons. Yeah. A little less than. Yeah. But. And then we have to go into Voyager, so... I think Richard's going to need some pretty serious therapy to get through Voyager, and maybe I, just I will need too. A, a life-size Tuvok to hold. No, I think it'll be fine. You know, I don't want to. I, I joke, but I think the Voyager episodes will be really good. I think actually, you know, Voyager is one of those shows that uh, has a very specific reputation, which I think is both deserved and not deserved. I don't really know anything about the show other than Kate Mulgrew is in it, and it has Tuvok, and they voyage. That's enough. That's enough. You don't need to know any more than that. You'll find out in like a year or so when we get I'm to it. I'm really excited. And Enterprise, I'm really excited about because I know even less about that. Well, you'll find out. Uh, yeah, so next week we're going to be talking about Hard Time and Shattered Mirror. <laughs>